Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Welcome in to the Autzen Audible's podcast mailbag edition to the show. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack, all three of us live on the show, or I guess recording the show. We're not live because we're not streaming. Uh, but nonetheless, hey, it's Happy Monday. Uh, spring football has had two days of practice. So I'm sure there's going to be some talk there. A bunch of recruits swung through. We're going to start talking with those players. Uh, NIT runs are going on for both the men's and the women's programs. Uh, we've got baseball with a crazy comeback. Uh, there's a lot going on, and I think that's reflected in the podcast mailbag uh, submissions of what we got from all you guys that listen to the show. Not as much spring football recap questions as I thought, so we must have just covered all of it. We must have just every we must have been so exhaustive that no one has anything left Oof. they want to ask. Because um, you know that's what happens on this podcast. But we do have, as you as you kind of alluded to, Matt, a recruiting uh, spring centric question. That's where we're going to start the show with a question from. Probably one of our most frequent question askers, Ross underscore Maselich. He asks, as the spring slash spring game is one of the most important recruiting events of the year, what would classify this spring as a successful one from a recruiting perspective? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Well, this is a good place to start because one thing we didn't really address in our recap show on Friday was the fact that there were a dozen, a couple dozen, three dozen. I don't know, Matt, maybe you have an idea on the total number of, of recruits and attendants for Thursday's practice. Saturday, probably a similar number. A lot of recruits were here. Dan talked about the value of having players, uh, or sorry, recruits, I should say, come out and, and viewing practice and how that's a huge selling point, shows how hard they work, just kind of shows um, you know, how close everybody is. So uh, I think this is a good question, but I think we should start kind of, Matt, with just who are some of the big names that were up on campus this weekend? And then we can maybe jump into kind of big picture for, for spring. What would constitute a success from a recruiting perspective? Yeah, I, I think um, the number was somewhere around 35, 40 um, recruits between Thursday and Fridays or Thursday and Saturdays practices, excuse me. Um, I think probably the biggest name isn't maybe the highest rated guy, but that's Fox Crater, a four-star offensive tackle. Um, he's committed to Oregon and he's out of the Vancouver area, but it's important because he's kind of blown up since committing to Oregon. Um, A&M has offered him a scholarship. Uh, SEC schools are, are coming and I think he's going to check out Georgia here in a little bit. Um, this is an important guy to keep in the fold. When he committed, it was kind of like, oh, well, that's that's a nice get. But, you know, it's a three-star guy. Is he really, you know, someone you want to lock in this early? And it clearly was. Uh, and it was an important visit because he had a really good relationship with Adrian Clem, who is now gone. Uh, the Oregon offensive line coach went off to the NFL. Uh, this was his opportunity to meet Alik Terry, the replacement for, for Clem. Um, so that – that was probably an important one. USC transfer Gary Bryant Jr. Uh, was on a visit this weekend with family. Um, things seem to be going well there, according to Greg Biggins of, of 24-7 Sports. Uh, this is an inside slot receiver. Uh, and then there's Bryce West, uh, a four-star cornerback in the 2024 recruiting class. 
um, highly regarded player out of, I think, Ohio, somewhere in the Midwest, um, if I remember right. Um, six foot, top like 50, top 60, 70 player in the country. Um, cornerback's an important position for Oregon. Um, there were a lot of guys here. Uh, local, there were a lot of guys that were like 2026 prospects. I mean, we, we talked about on like Thursday's practice. Um, I can't remember the, the player's name, but he's like a six foot six, 275 pound freshman in high school who already has an offer from Alabama. He plays at IMG Academy. Um, he was, it's great radio, great podcasting. I don't know, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but that's where Oregon was at. Like they had 2026 guys, they had portal guys, and they had everything in between. Um, so, like Dan said, it was an opportunity for them to showcase the program. Now, like what would constitute um, a successful spring or a successful spring game from a recruiting standpoint? Like, I would hate to put like they need to land six verbal commitments or right. more. You know, like that that feels because like what happens like if in June, you know, they don't get any, but then in June, all of a sudden a flurry comes in. Um, I, I would I would hope that like during spring ball, during the spring game, you're able to sign or you're able to land a handful of commitments and or put yourself in a position where during the summer months or during the fall months, another handful, four, five, six, eight guys who were here end up committing. So it's all about putting yourself in that position where you're the first, you know, you're the top dog in, in the recruitment. Obviously landing commitments would be huge, would be needed, but it's not just, Hey, you need X number of commits or it was, it was deemed a bad, bad week or a bad month. Yeah. And I, I think kind of, I'm in agreement there, Matt. I, I don't know if it's right to set a number. Um, I think a couple of things that to me would be positives or a, you want to get probably any quarterback recruit, any safety recruit, any offensive line recruit that you prioritize in 24 on campus this spring, because they need to be able to build these relationships with these position coaches. Uh, mm -hmm. I mentioned those three because those are the, the new position coaches. We talked about that. That's where Will Stein, Chris Hampton, Elite Terry. Uh, these are these are guys who are cutting their teeth at Oregon. They need to be able to develop these relationships. I think that's important. Um, I think the quarterback position in general in 24, um, not that I'm concerned because it's it's still very early in the process. I mean, we're not even to April yet. But uh, in past years, you kind of had maybe a better feel for where Oregon's priorities were and maybe kind of maybe a couple of prospect, prospects they were leading for. And, of course, last year around this time, it was like Nico Yamalava was, was the guy that they were supposedly in great shape for, and we know how that went down. Um, so I'm not saying it's too late, but I think it would be nice by the end of spring to not necessarily have the commitment from your your, your quarterback recruit this cycle, but to at least maybe have an idea of, of where you're headed there. Uh, two to three players that have maybe made it up here during spring, whether it be the spring game, whether it be a couple practices, whatnot, um, and and, and kind of know that you're you're you know you you've got a seat at the table that you have a chance there because we talked about it in 24. Brandon Huffman made this pretty clear when we had him on the show. It's a it's a weaker class at quarterback, and, and mm -hmm. he kind of you know sort of suggested that this might be a class where Oregon maybe takes a guy, but also hits hits the portal pretty hard because you might not have somebody who's capable of being an instant contributor because there's not that much depth, and, and and a fair number of these top recruits have already kind of decided where they're going. So I think the quarterback position, and especially because this is Will Stein's first full cycle at Oregon, I think it's really important that they hit the ground running and you at least come out of the spring months with an idea of where you're headed there. 
Yeah, I'm I'm with Matt on this case where it's not it's not proper to have like a specific amount of people that they should you know land a commitment from like four to six guys whatever. I mean, it it would be great if Oregon were to land some guys on their spring game. Um, it's been something that like that that kids have done in the last couple of seasons. I think for me, I think the most successful thing is just to get everybody uh, any everybody who's anybody on campus if you can. Just try to line up as many guys and bring them here as possible. Um, similar to what they did last season, where they had you know guys like David Hicks Jr. and they had Jurion Dickey. Um, you know, a lot of guys who would end up committing to Oregon, like Blake Purchase. They had Jonte Cook, who eventually I think went to Texas. Um, they had that Alabama running back whose name is is escaping my head. I think it, Richard Young. I think that was it. Right. Um, just like all these five star guys, because for a lot of them. Uh, except for Richard Young and Jonte Cook, but Oregon was in their final three. It was a legitimate competition for Oregon to go against these these Texas schools or these SEC schools in these battles. And yeah, they didn't come through in the end, and that's you know probably mostly because of distance factor. But the fact that you get them on campus early in the spring cycle, quarterbacks a whole different recruiting breed now because you have to get them you know committed basically by July or August, so you're going to lose them. Um, you know, to get those guys on campus and to see the facilities and to meet with the coaching staff, like Eric said, especially the new guys, I think that's the biggest win you can get. If you land some commitments, that's great. Um, I think that'll happen anyway, because that's just what has happened. And, and for, for most big programs in the country, they land some commitments on their spring game, and maybe it'll be a high profile kid. Maybe it'll be a guy who's uh, a developmental player who needs like two or three years in the system before he attacks. But I think regardless a successful spring in my mind is just Dan and company bringing in as many high profile kids as they can, because it seems like in the last, you know, 10 years, ever since uh, the Mo was built, ever since the state of the art football facility, the Hat Hatfield Dallin complex, like ever since those things were built, when people come to Oregon, it sticks in their brain. They, they remember it. They think about it. You get them there for the spring game. You get these high profile kids there. They're going to remember it. They're going to think about it. And I think for, for Oregon, for despite the distance issues. Uh, I think that's sometimes the most you can do, but sometimes that turns out to be most prevalent and they remember that and they have such a high off of the visit that, you know, that's going to stick in their mind for a while. So I think that's, that's as clear as it is for me and what would make a successful spring, um, you know, barring some high profile commitment landing, but we'll see if that happens. And, and to that point, um, Oregon currently has five, commitments, uh, verbal commitments in the class of 2024. All five of them are four stars, uh, eighth ranked class nationally. I think we should just maybe uh, provide the listeners who maybe aren't dialed in on recruiting. Like Oregon's off to a good start. And, and, and to Jared's point about how kind of happens naturally, or I, I would say, I won't say it's a disappointment, but it would be probably surprising if you get through the spring and let's say the first week of May, where you kind of got that week after the spring game shine mm -hmm. to wear off, it would probably be a little bit surprising at least if Oregon doesn't land any commitments in the month of April and the first couple of weeks of May following spring. Um, so that's not to set an expectation of like, oh yeah, they're going to, like we said, oh, they're going to land four to six or, or whatever. But I do think it would be surprising if they don't land anybody in, in this span. This is as we've, I think anybody who's followed recruiting closely understands this is a, a, a pretty important stretch here for any football program. And I think as the question uh, opens from Ross, like this is arguably the most you know, important recruiting event aside from football games in the fall. And then of course the, the SNL camp in July, these, this is one of your, your, your big events. So it, it is important to, to build relationships and, and Hey, a, a commitment here or there, I think not necessarily has to be the expectation, but probably that'll 
more than likely that should be the expectation, to be honest. <laughs> Real quick, and I apologize. I've got construction going on in my house. So if you hear that, I can't deal with it. Um, spring game, there might be like 500 recruits here because the next day, the Elite 11 camp is going to be in Eugene hosting, you know, mm-hmm their their regional camp for the area and it's one of the last ones and it's going to be an opportunity for a lot of kids to try and make an impression to get into the opening to get to the elite finals yep. so their this year's spring game visitor list will be bananas just based off of oregon already doing a really good job trying to lock in recruits to get here for the spring game but then on top of that you throw in the fact that hey you can come to the oregon spring game you can check out the ducks and then the day after um, Oregon's not involved in it, but the day after you you can also attend the Elite Eleven camp. That's uh, like a double dip right there from a recruit perspective. Go see a really big school and then try and get into a really prestigious uh, football camp. That seems like smart scheduling. Yes, it does. Good job, I Oregon. Uh, all right, second question here from at Duck Cruise, another I would say familiar name on this podcast from a question asking perspective. Uh, what home games other than the USC game do you think will be the most exciting to see and why? And he uh, opines, I think Colorado because of Dion, hashtag Otsnotables. Thank you for using the hashtag. Uh, most people who ask questions on the show used it uh, this week, which was good. Um, well, I, I, so there's a couple of different ways to look at this. I mean, most exciting um, is probably going to be for me the same answer. But let me run through the home schedule just so people listening who maybe haven't memorized it uh, have an idea of what we're talking about. Non-conference, they host Portland State, they host Hawaii. Conference play, they do host Colorado in the first conference game. Then they host Washington State, Cal, USC, and Oregon State. Duck Cruz has eliminated SC from contention here, which would be, the, as he suggested, the pretty obvious choice. That's going to be, for a myriad of reasons, the most exciting home game of the season and potentially one of, if not the bigger games in conference play uh, for this conference uh, in terms of deciding the conference championship race. Um, I think the easy pick is Oregon State, right? Based upon the fact that you're coming off a rivalry game that was exciting for different reasons, for two different fan bases. Um, anytime that there is a, a rivalry game like this that uh, goes away, that's very memorable. Like Oregon State fans will look at the 2022 Oregon-Oregon State game. Should I call it the Civil War? They'll look at it as one of these mm. kind of crowning moments in the rivalry of, what you're gonna you're gonna do? Gonna... Our, our podcast is gonna be banned, man. I can't believe you said those two naughty words. How dare I? But people, but people in Corvallis are gonna look at this 2022 Oregon Oregon State rivalry football game as, there we as, go. as a as a very memorable game, as a game that will be probably one of their most fond because it was a incredible comeback from their perspective. And then the Oregon side will be looked at as one of the biggest disappointments because it was such a collapse. Right? This is how fan bases uh, sort of remember and kind of are, are going to, um, I guess, re- recall this game. So I think going into 23, it's really, it, it, you know, it'll be an intriguing game for a variety of reasons. Plus, that's, to me, other than USC, the best team that comes to Hudson all season. Um, I, mean, I think Oregon State, there are definitely some holes to fill um, from last year's roster, but that's the case everywhere. That's the case at Oregon. But you, I think you're, you know, you're encouraged if we don't need to do a whole Oregon State breakdown of their offseason. But they definitely upgraded at quarterback, or at least from a talent and physical tools perspective, brought in somebody who is more physically gifted than anybody they've had in a while. Maintain most of what made them good offensively in terms of the, the running backs are back. The, the majority of that offensive line is back. And some of the better defensive players are, are back. I know they lose a lot in the secondary. I think they lose a little bit up front. But 
I expect Oregon State to once again be one of the better teams in, I will again hearken to a thing that no longer exists, the Pac-12 North, which is no longer a thing. But I expect them to be one of the better teams from those six schools that previously were in the Pac-12 North. And so I, I think to me that's a pretty easy choice. I get the Colorado excitement. There will probably be a lot of uh, national buzz for a game in September at Autzen Stadium. But uh, I, ultimately, I think the Oregon-Oregon State rivalry football game will be the game I'm most excited to see at Autzen, other than USC this year. I'm going Colorado. I get a simple answer for me. The Oregon-Oregon State matchup, it happens every single season. I think that Deion Sanders moving to Colorado and coaching them was probably the biggest story of the offseason. Uh, that Colorado team is going to look completely different than it did last year. I don't know how good they're going to be, if they're going to be good, quote-unquote good, um, because they certainly were not last year. That was um, you know, one of the worst teams in the country. But just the, the palpable buzz we're going to feel in the press box, in the stadium, on the walk to Odson. Uh, I think it's going, to, it's going to be different than most other games this entire season. Plus, it's going to be in the middle of September or, or, or mid, yeah, middle of September. Um, it's going to be nice weather, hopefully. It usually is pretty nice around that time of year in Eugene. Uh, it's going to get a national TV spot because this is going to be Deion Sanders' first conference game, first Pac-12 conference game. And, you know, luckily for Deion, he's only going to have to have one season in the Pac-12 before it explodes this offseason. So that's good for him. But, you know, going into that Oregon game, uh, non-conference play for Colorado is going to be tough. They face the TCU, the national runner-up, uh, Nebraska, and then Colorado State. Uh, I think those are going to be all good games for Colorado. I think you know if they if they come away two and one, let's say they lose to uh, Nebraska because Matt Rule rules. Um, that's going to be a pretty highly publicized game. Uh, Oregon's going to be coming off their decent non-con schedule, uh, really just the Texas Tech game. I just think it's going to be a lot of excitement. And I think that's going to be the most exciting game other than the USC game that's on the schedule in terms from a national perspective. And, you know, for Oregon, you need those games. You need those games to – you need to win those games because people are going to be watching them. It's not going to be Pac-12 after dark. It's not going to be anything like that. And that's going to be, again, the most highly publicized game other than the USC one. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm most excited for that one. Um, the Oregon State one, that, that, that'll be a good game. I just think I, I'm me personally, I'm way more excited for Colorado. I just think that's a much bigger storyline. And, you know, I'm excited to see what Dion does. I think it could be really good for the conference. Or like I said earlier, the conference just won't exist in, in a year and a half. So it'll be all for naught. Uh, I said this Colorado was like my most exciting game beyond USC a couple months ago when the schedule came out. Yeah, when we broke Very, it down. Yeah. Yeah, for the very reason that Jared said, it's Deion Sanders, and it's the first conference game. Like Jared said, that that game will be on primetime national TV, no pun intended, because of prime as the head coach of Colorado. Uh, and if I wasn't going to pick Colorado, I, I would I would take uh, Oregon State, like Eric said. But I, I think there will be some buzz for that, hear me out here, Portland State game. Um, it's the first game of the season. Uh, it's the excitement. It's it's the new offense. Uh, it's Bo Nix's return. Um, it's not a game that like nationally people are going to be. Oh, look at this! You know, the fan base will be half the st half the stadium will be empty by the start of the fourth quarter, if not more. But it's just an opportunity where you see a lot of new things for the first time, and it could be an opportunity for a lot of guys who don't play a lot to get a lot of significant playing time. And there's value in that as well. 
I think it's great. We touched on three games as candidates here, considering that I think you look at the home schedule as a whole and probably figure most it's of the best games are, are road games, right? I mean, like the, the yeah. teams that Oregon, the, the better teams in the conference primarily they play are, are road games. So the fact that we can highlight three games is maybe being exciting. How about that? That's pretty well, good. I was, I was going to have one more thing that Washington State game might sneak up as a good sure. game. Yeah. Because, yeah, again, Oregon, you know, pulls off of a comeback. Uh, last season in Pullman by the skin of their teeth. Uh, I, I would expect Washington State to be pretty darn good next season. Cam Ward now is going to be in his second year of, of uh, Pac-12 football. I mean, he was electric against Oregon, maybe not so much against other teams. But and this year, if he's more consistent, they're going to have one of the best quarterbacks in the conference. So I, I could see why somebody could make a case for that. But well, I don't know. It's, just, it's a terrible home slate compared to what it was last season. The, the other argument for the Wazoo game is, I don't think it's the most exciting, but it's a possible trap game. I think we've been over this, but yeah. Washington, week before in Seattle, Utah, week after in Salt Lake City, basically your two toughest, well, definitely your two toughest road games, and, and arguably maybe two of your three toughest games of the year are, are just kind of sandwiching that Washington State game. So if, if you're going to have a game where you're kind of heads all over the place thinking about what, what's going to happen, the, what happened the previous week, what's going to happen the next week, that could be the kind That's of situation. It. So, hey, we it's a crappy uh, a home slate, but we have four games that might be good. Now, now let's figure out how we can say uh, the California game uh, and, the, <laughs> and November 4th. Um, what's, what's good about that game? We have a, Byron we have, Hardwell revenge game? All right. Probably nothing left. Will Cox coming back to Oregon? I don't know. He's um, done that a lot, though. So, yeah. <laughs> will, will, fans, will fans write letters <laughs> for the dismissal? Oh, of God, I hope not. Will Cox? No? Okay. No, um, no, I got nothing. Yeah. All right. Let's take a quick break. Uh, two questions in two more to go. We'll come back here after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Uh, two questions in, a, little, a, a few more to go here. Uh, wide-ranging topics. So wide-ranging that I'm going to do very little talking, which based upon some YouTube comments will make some people very happy. Uh, these are topics that are far from my expertise, so we're going to start with a baseball question, Jared. This is, I believe, our mm. third or fourth all-time baseball question on an Odds and Audibles mailbag podcast. And this one comes from at Theo Winter underscore. Question for at Jared Mac Seven, which, by the way, go follow Jared on Twitter. You can do so. You now have his information, primarily because I'm a baseball guy, but would also like your take as well as Matt's. Uh, how are we feeling about Oregon baseball? What is the team's main weaknesses right now? And who needs to step more, up more so than others for the team to make the tourney? Jared, I am going to just throw this your way um, and maybe start with just how exciting the conclusion to this Washington State series was. A series I know you weren't feeling particularly confident uh, when I spoke to you on Friday. Yeah, it was it was a good finish. Um, after trailing seven to one after the first inning, 
Uh, Oregon scored 12 unanswered runs and then won the final game against Washington State, which gave them a series victory. Um, but Theo, therein lies the answer to your question of what's going on with this team and who needs to step up. It's the pitching staff. Uh, they have been atrocious these last couple games. And you know, I don't mind saying that because they've been really just that bad. Um, and I think the biggest issue here is they've been allowing free passes. Free passing meaning uh, based on balls, walks, and, or hit by pitches. Um, and it's been it's been miserable. I guess you know last week they lost a midweek game to Niagara. Uh, yes, that Niagara. And like like you're probably thinking at home right now, listening to this podcast or wherever you are, like the falls from Niagara. Um, Jared, Jared sadly, that was exactly yes. what I was. I was exactly what I was going to say. Embarrassingly, I was going to. I was going to interject like the falls. And uh, yes, that is the like only the reference point I would have. Uh, that's the only reference point you need, and that's the only reference point you need to know how embarrassing of a loss that was. And it was eight to five, so it wasn't really that close. Um, Oregon allowed nine walks that game, one hit by pitch, and four wild pitches. Um, bad, bad, and and pretty darn bad. Uh, th- these are things that just can't happen. And for Oregon last season, they had a lot of these issues. Uh, it's the same stuff that's popping up this year. A lot of walks, a lot of hit by pitches, a lot of free base runners for the opposing team. I guess uh, the only difference between this year's program and last year's program, at least at this point, was that last year's program hit the crap out of the ball. And while Oregon has done that the last couple of games, uh, it's been Jekyll and Hyde approach to their hitting performances. Uh, some days they you know, can line up the scoreboard for 10 plus hits. Uh, other days they'll go hitless for the first four innings and then you'll, you'll be asking yourself what the heck is going on. And I think that's what coach, head coach Mark Wazikowski is asking as well because um, he's trying to find whatever clicks and they're going through multiple different lineup changes in the series, um, moving guys all over the place, moving guys in, moving guys out of the lineup. Um, so it's, it's all very much a work in progress right now, but you know, luckily for baseball, as you know, Theo, this is a very long season. Um, they're 18 games in, which means they have 38 games left in a 56 game schedule. Um, so that's going to be a lot of time to come back and potentially make a tournament run. but. Um, I guess specifically who needs to step up more, uh, the pitching staff, uh, specifically the younger pitchers, Leo Ullman and, and uh, Jackson Pace, both are very are true freshman pitchers. So, you know, you're asking a lot of them already by being your number two and number three in your weekend rotation behind Jay Stoffel as your, your ace, quote unquote. Um, but here have here are the stats of how they've done the last two games. Both uh, both pitchers, so four total starts, um, one by or two by Pace, two by Ullman. They have combined for nine innings pitched, so one complete baseball game in the last four starts. Good. Uh, 24 earned runs. <laughs> seven walks. That's not good. No. Uh, seven walks and six strikeouts total. Uh, again, so as you can see with their walks, <laughs> their walks are higher than their strikeouts. Uh, last time I checked, which was like Friday afternoon after Oregon's debacle of a first game, um, Oregon was in the 200s out of like 350 total schools in Division One baseball for like strikeout to walk ratio and then total walks allowed per innings pitched. Bad. Um, that's not exactly where you'd like to be. Fun fact. Um, you know, these, these stats from Pace and Ullman are actually held up pretty well by Leo Ullman because Jackson Pace has thrown exactly 1.2 combined innings in his last two starts. He went 1.1 in his last or in his first start against UCLA and then 0.1 innings. So that means he got one out in his last start. These are bad. These are just very bad numbers. And um, you need those guys to step up because, 
you know, Jay Stoffel has been pretty good this season. He wasn't his best against um, Washington State, but I think that was more of a command issue. Just couldn't get a grip on his curveball. Just left everything up. Couldn't shut the blind, as we like to say in the baseball industry. But, you know, he's at least reliable. You can at least rely on him for five to six innings and some, some strikeouts and probably keeping it below three to four in runs. You need other guys has, to step up. And sadly, you're asking true freshmen to step up. Was it expected that the baseball, the baseball, uh, the pitchers would be this inconsistent or maybe just poor? Like, was that going to be their expected weakness? It's kind of surprising to me from afar. I don't think it should be that surprising. This is exactly their weakness last season. Um, and again, you're relying on true freshman pitchers. And you see it in basketball. You see true freshmen, uh, you know, go through ups and downs and inconsistencies as we saw on the, on the basketball team this season for both sides. Sure. Uh, baseball is a much harder sport. And it's just significantly harder to throw a baseball for strikes. And I know that may sound pretty simple, but it's not. It's really hard to do so. And you're, got, you're, you're forcing two guys who were just pitching in high school last season to go against, you know, future MLB stars at UCLA or Washington State. Um, you know, and they were good for the first couple starts of the season, but eventually it gets difficult. And I think the only issue that I see here is that this is a repetitive issue with Oregon's pitching staff from last year to this year. So, you know, they're also dealing with injuries. Isaac Aon should be back in the next month, I think. And then RJ Gordon's probably out for the season, so he's another starter. But you need these guys to step up. Like, it's just as clear as that. Um, I don't know what they're going to do. I think they got to work on a little bit of mechanic problems for pace because he just doesn't have anything these last two starts. But We'll see. Uh, it's just not ideal right now. But like I said earlier, a lot of games left. A lot of games left to, to right the ship. Jared, what's their record and what do they have in front of them the next couple of weeks? Uh, Oregon is 11-7 and seven overall, 3-3 three and three in conference. Uh, they play Northwestern State, which trivia question for everybody listening in, including you, Matt, and Eric. Where is Northwestern State University? I, uh, Missouri. No. I don't think it's going to be in the same state as actual Northwestern. So I will go um, Michigan. No. It's in Natchez, Louisiana, because it is in a northwestern part of the state of Louisiana. My friend, uh, my dear friend Tyler and I drove through it during our cross-country road trip. It is a real university, and they're coming to Eugene this weekend. Um, so that's who Oregon has this weekend. And then, um, yeah, they have four-game series starting Friday. So they have a chance to get to 15-7, and seven, which, which would really help their record. Yeah, maybe it's a get-right series at the right time um, before they – I assume they go back to conference play shortly after, the next week maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, uh, fourth question. This is going to be a lot of Matt. This is men's basketball, and this is a question from, I think, a first-time question asker. I think Theo was as well from the baseball questions, though. Thank you a couple guys here for, for tossing questions our way that, that haven't done so in the past. Hopefully you continue to do so. This one from at TWheelPTLD. Not sure I can really – Yeah, I don't know if I can figure Take out what those letters mean. Uh, I don't think I'm going to. I, I, PTLD. I mean, I, I Portland maybe for that. Uh, maybe it's – Maybe the, maybe his name is Terrence Wheel from Portland. Uh, if you if you end up listening, DM me. I, I always have fun going back and forth with people because this happens pretty frequently where I, I talk about their Twitter handle and they send me an explanation of what it really stands for. Um, 
He asks, uh, can you break down the men's hoops team scholarship for next season? It might be too soon. Um, it would seem like we have multiple open rhymes with Will gone and three coming back or coming in, sorry, but another three to six might not come back. Um, Matt, I think there's been a little bit more clarity on some of the players returning, um, at least after the conference tournament. I know there might be some players that we don't have clarity with, but I, and I know I probably agree a little bit with it being too soon because the season's still ongoing and some of these decisions haven't been made. But do you have kind of a rough estimate of what this looks like for for Oregon? Yeah, so they've got 12 guys on scholarship right now. Um, 11 of those 12 have the ability to come back next season. So when you add – the only guy who can't is Will Richardson. So when you add those 11 plus the three that they've signed, they're technically one over the scholarship limit at this point in time. Now, I think it's happened just once in the entire – 12 previous off seasons that Dana Altman has had at Oregon where they've had zero transfers out of the program. So safe to say um, players will be leaving. One has to leave. That's not expected to, um, or doesn't have to. Jermaine Kuznard, Nate Biddle, both have gone on record already saying uh, with us on duck territory that they are back next season. Um, so, you know, you at least have, Nate Biddle, Jermaine Kuznard, and then three incoming freshmen. Jackson Shellstead, a point guard, Mookie Cook, a wing, and Kwame KJ Evans, a forward. So you got five guys for sure. Um, and follow Dante has to make a decision. Does he go pro? Does he come back? Um, Kyle Ware has to make a decision. Does he go pro? Does he come back? Does he enter the transfer portal? Um and then Quincy Guerrier, Rivaldo Soares, uh, two other seniors on the roster, what do they do? Um, Gurrier's role has, before the NIT, has gone down um, because of production on the court. Um, Biddle has kind of taken some of his minutes away. Uh, you've got a five-star coming in that plays your position. Um, do you accept the fact that you're going to play a different role than when you arrived, or do you go pro? Do you, you know, and pro could mean, I'm going overseas. You know, people, that's uh, an idea that I don't think people truly realize that in today's day and age, you make a lot of money still going overseas, not playing in just the NBA. Um, it, tell a student, you know, that's in the business department, hey, you have an opportunity to go make $185,000 a year if you leave college one year early. Uh, a lot of those kids are going to take that opportunity as well. Um Quincy will have that decision to make, or does he transfer? Um, and I think it's a realistic idea that between Biddle, Ware, and Dante, one of those guys will not be on the roster next season. Um, you'd love to have all three. Uh, you'd love to see him, you know, do that. But just in today's day and age of basketball, that normally that's not the norm anymore. Um, and I have a hard time seeing you know, Dante coming back and, and Khalil Ware, whether he wants to go pro or whether he wants to play college again, looking at it being like, I want to, I want to make it to the NBA, but you know, this isn't, I need minutes and playing 12, 13, 15 minutes a game is not enough here at Oregon. You know, he probably didn't think Dante would be here, you know, one more year. I don't know. Um, Rivaldo Soros is another guy. Like does, He's clearly shown that he can be more than what he uh, was 
over the course of this season during the NIT, kind of having to be the focal point for the team um, offensively and defensively. Does he look for an expanded role somewhere else, or is he okay having that type of role that he had this past two seasons for a third year? So it, it's still difficult to kind of project out um, where Oregon is at from a roster standpoint. I would think like they're probably going to have two to five open spots, you know, to, to, to fill. Um, five being the worst case because that would mean six players leave the program. Um, two being kind of like the norm because that would that would mean three guys. You know, Dante goes pro. Um, you you. Tyrone Williams, a guy that just hasn't had a, a role this season until the NIT. Maybe he leaves, and maybe Quincy Gurrier, whose role you know has has gone down, also leaves. Um, that's how you get to your three spots, and you have two open scholarships to, to fill. Um, and then look, all three of those guys can come back too. I you know that's very much a possibility, but that's kind of where they're at. Um, we know they've made contact with at least four players in the transfer portal already. Um, a couple of them are guards uh, and a couple of them are big men, you know, power forward center type guys. We know that they've made a, a scholarship offer to a junior college transfer at the guard position. So, you know, Dana Altman's already said it. They, they need to add shooting and they need to add guys that can hit the three point shot. And you look at the targets that they've, you know, looked at in the portal and the, the transfer that they've hit, uh, the offer that they've made in the, in the JUCO level, all five of them are are good shooters for their positions. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, Matt, other than shooting, because you kind of answered that part, what, what are some traits or, or I guess, like, like what, what should they be looking for if they are? And, and I, I guess I also ask because I know because we don't know the numbers here. Like what what would make sense in terms of how much would you actually want to see added to this roster? Assuming you're pretty accurate with your your three gone, you've got two scholarships, you bring in the three prep kids. Like, how much would you actually like to see added? Is, would you like to see just like let's go find the best possible shooter, go grab him, or or do you think there's more nuance to to kind of how you would go about approaching it? Um, let let's for this exercise, let's say four players leave because that's in the middle. Six, sure, you know, six, you know, and three. Um, that would give you three open scholarships. I, I think you have to go and find some kind of knockdown shooter at the portal level before you go and discuss Barani James. Um, Cause he's still out there too, but I, you want a college ready proven player, a guy that, that you can say for two years, three years, or even one year at the college level, he shot at 38% or 42% from three. And this is a guy that that's going to be our inside out guy. When the ball swings inside and gets kicked out for an open three, this is the guy that's going to get the ball. They, well, what Anthony Mathis was, what Tyler Dorsey was, um, what Casey Benson was for those really good teams that went far into the tournament. Um, you know, guys that just, when they're open, they're not going to miss. And maybe they can't create the shot, but you can get ways to, to get them open. Um, and then from there, I would almost try and find another shooter, whether that's a Bronny James ad, a guy that, you know, or maybe it's another portal ad, or maybe it's a Juco guy. Find someone that, you know, could potentially be here a year to maybe two or three. Um, I don't quite see the need for big guys unless 
Oregon is anticipating that Dante goes pro. Kalel where you know, is not with the program next season, whether that's transferring or going pro. And Quincy Guerrier is gone. Because then in that scenario, um, you'd only have Nate Biddle, uh, Kwame Evans, a freshman, and Luke Wer. Then you would, yeah, then you would need another big man. Um, I, I would try to find two guards. And then after that, you, you add a, another big man. But I, I think it's really interesting that last night, um, Biddle said that he's more comfortable playing the five. I think he's his production has gone through the roof the last two games mm-hmm. when he's had to play the center position, when he's had to play 25 minutes. The spacing on the floor is better. I love Infale Dante. I think he's one. I think he's the best big man that Dane Altman's ever had at Oregon from a back-to-the-basket standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, the day and age of, of that style of basketball being highly successful has pretty much passed. Like You, you have to have shooters on the floor, and he, he can't shoot a ball you know, beyond the free throw, you know, line or the, the, the paint and that clogs everything up. Um, and it gets kind of, I think, Oregon away from what they've historically been at their best. And that's ball movement, driving, you know, kick out for threes. Um, so that, they've got a tough decision to make, you know, you've got arguably your best back to the basket player in a long time, over 15 years at Oregon, but it goes away with what kind of works in today's day and age of college mm-hmm. basketball. Well, I think it goes away from what Oregon was good at for a while too. Um, you know, even with guys like Jordan Bell, Chris Boucher, I wouldn't say that they were back to the basket guys. And when you had Boucher and Bell on the court at the same time, Boucher could at least hit a three. So when a, when a guard would crash the lane, uh, one of the defenders would go follow Boucher. The other one would close out to try to stop whoever it was, and the guard would bob it to Bell, and that's exactly what they did. And you never saw that this season or last year because there were no shooters on the floor. It wasn't just that Nafale Dante couldn't shoot. It was that nobody could shoot except for Will Richardson, who likely had the ball in his hands and isn't great at creating his own shot. Um, so I, I agree wholeheartedly with Matt. They need to get you know two or three guys um, who can all be floor spacers. And like Matt said, they don't need to be able to create their own shot. They just need to be able to basically you know, shoot off the catch and every once in a while shoot off the dribble. Um, because I think Oregon's offense operates at its best when it, you're able to drive and kick. You're able to create a lane, um, either exploit that lane and drive to the rack and maybe dump it off to a big man or lob it up to a big man like Fiddle or Ware, whoever decides to come back, or kick it out to the corner, kick it out to the wing. Um, I do think that it's you know it, it could be potentially very likely that Gurrier, Dante, and Ware all don't come back. And then at that point, um, you need to go find big men. And by big men, I mean like, 6'9 to 6'10 or 6'11 guys who are just there to play defense and rebounding because I do think that that's the best the best look that Oregon has um the Jordan Bells the the Kenny Wootens of the world like I think that's all they need I think they need to be guard heavy or at least wing heavy which is what they seem to be doing with um this recruiting class with uh Mookie Cook and Kwame Evans and Jackson Shellstad like all guys who theoretically could handle the ball they don't need like another guy who needs touches. They don't need another Nafale Dante who you have to get the ball to down the low block, at least in my in my opinion. Um, I think you just need a guy who's going to be able to set screens, uh, dunk, catch lob passes, grab rebounds, block some shots, and, and be an intimidator. And maybe that is uh, Nate Biddle, 
who translates into that role where he is an intimidator on the low block and can space the floor. I think that would be the best of both worlds, or at least that was the, at least that was the, you know, the idea of what Khalil Ware would bring to this team. It just didn't, it never materialized, but um, I think that's what you got to look for. If those guys decide not to come back, if they do, then yeah, you got to go get some guards, guards and probably one other big man, just as depth in case somebody is injured or something like that. I mean, the off season is going to be critical for the program. And I, and I think we should talk about Bronny James here too, because That's... the amount of interest that there's already, you can tell excitement around this freshman class. And I think a large part of that, ironically enough, is for the most lower rated guy on the class, Jackson Shelstead. He's not mm-hmm. a five-star compared to Cook and compared to, to Evans. Um, Cook is an Oregonian, but he played his two final years of high school ball in Arizona. Um, Shellstead's just a four-year point guard from Westland, you know, Oregonian, two-time Gatorade Player of the Year. There's a lot of excitement around him in this freshman class. And if you add Bronny James, the offseason hype would be just through the roof, and the interest would be through the roof. You know, you, you would have probably a sold-out game the first game of the year. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think it's that big of an impact. But the decision making process for Oregon here is is I don't think while Bronny James looks like a potential one and done player, I don't know if that's necessarily what and it sounds crazy Oregon wants or needs for next season because yes, his individual talent is great, but he's he's not proven it at the collegiate level. He hasn't proven that he can play consistently for 37 games in a season. How many freshmen at Oregon have shown up and have been superstars for the entire, for their entire freshman year. And we have seen how many Kentucky teams built around four five, six freshmen and they fail to live up to expectations. Um, it's going to be a fascinating watch. Does Oregon go all in on Bronny James? Cause he, he his skill set fills, some of these needs. He's a good defender. He's a good playmaker. He's improved his shot making. His athleticism has has gone through the roof this past season. Um, but are you wanting to put more pressure on yet another freshman to rely on night in, night out to be, you know, to be one of your key guys to ensure that you're a sweet 16, elite eight caliber team? I don't that's a very hard ask, and I don't know the answer to that. Not even to look at Bronny specifically, but the track record of Oregon and true freshman has not been good, um, to put it lightly. If you just look at the players of similar caliber recruits um, and, and kind of what the immediate returns have been, um, ha- hasn't been a great track record at all. And so um, I, I signed me up for the Bronny James experience as somebody who follows Same. the team probably a little bit more on the pre- on the periphery, I guess, in terms of there would be so much excitement. Matt laid it out. I think there'd be... Uh, you know, attendance has been a problem for Oregon men's basketball for several years, and this would sure that up. Now, the question that you do have is, is what I think a fair one that Matt raised of it, roster construction wise. Like, I think it's really interesting watching the NCAA tournament and seeing what works. And um, I, I was going to add earlier, like, it, it does seem to the NFL Dante thing. Like, I thought the Purdue experiment with Zach Eady as a seven foot four guy and you run everything through him. I thought that was really interesting to watch in, in the regular season and then watch it in the NCAA tournament and go, oh, is, is that is that something that you can really win six straight games in a really competitive field 
with that makeup? I don't know. And then the same thing, I think you can ask the same question about uh, given Oregon's track record with true freshmen, um, how, how much can you really expect if you're going to bring in Bronny and have four of, let's say, your top – because two of those are five-star recruits, and as, as Matt said, the other one is a kid everyone's excited about. If four of your best or four of your seven or best – seven or eight maybe best players are true freshmen – that's that's not something that we've really seen work at very many spots with consistency unless those players are surefire number one, you know, top five draft picks. And none of the guys we're talking about from Oregon are perceived to be that right now. Right. And the reason I bring that up is you could point to like Anthony Davis at, at, at Kentucky. That was the one that really stands out as having worked recently because they won a national championship. There were a bunch of five stars on that roster. Davis being one of the best, uh, you know, NBA draft prospects in a long time. None of the guys we're talking about Oregon are that. So I do think there is an interesting debate to be had about how you want to build rosters right now. And the last thing I'll say, and again, I'm not the expert here on, on men's basketball, but these have been a couple of kind of down years for Dana Altman. And I just kind of yeah. wonder, does he really want to get into the whole, we're just going to rely on a bunch of true freshmen in a season where I don't think any of us think his seat is hot, but where there certainly is some questions of, like, gosh, are we going to just be an NIT team for, for the foreseeable future? Like this is an important year for creating some momentum and relying on four true freshmen, given the track record they've had, does get you a little concerned. But again, I'm still, despite everything I just said, I'm still signing me up for Bronny James to be at Oregon because there's so many other positives. And and I do think he's a good player who can fit into, like, I think people mistake him for what they perceive maybe his his dad is, even though I think it's an, an, an incorrect comparison of like, oh, he's a ball hog, he needs the ball to do this. That's not at all what Bronny James does for anybody who's watched him. He is a team first, high IQ player, a really, really good glue guy. So there could be some positives, but um, you know, you're relying on 17, 18 year olds in these spots, which can be kind of scary. Yeah, I mean, it can it can be scary, but I feel like that's what all good teams do, like across the country nowadays. Uh, but I think the point of like bringing in four true freshmen who are going to be like you guys both said, like four of your top eight guys is a little different. Um, but that would require a couple guys to leave couple guys that maybe you didn't think would leave this offseason to leave and then you bring in Bronny but then it becomes four of your top 10 guys and you have six guys that you can put a rotation through who have experience who have um you know whether it's d1 or, or d1 like power five conference experience or d1 NCAA tournament experience um I think it could still work I think those teams do well for themselves um you know we're talking about a team for, in, in Oregon that made the NIT and we're talking about teams that are mostly made of freshmen who are at least competing in the NCAA tournament. So I don't know. I guess like I, I, I would rather have that team. What's, what, what's your what's your NCAA uh, tournament? What's your best example of the current teams in the tournament that you think have a run though that are baked built around that kind of construction? Because I've kind of looked around and got. I think the high majority of the teams still in there are are veteran based, which is which is kind of the point I was yeah. trying to differentiate between. Yeah, now now they are. Now that now that round two is over, I, I mean, I thought that a team like Duke was going to make a big run. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit a bit partial or a bit biased to that, but you know, they rattled off ten straight wins and won the ACC tournament as a team mostly constructed with true freshmen. Um, Kentucky was at least hot to end the season. Um, you look at a team like Alabama and know they have some experienced guards there, which is really important during NCAA tournament play. But they're led by a true freshman. Um, Baylor has experienced guards, but their wings are, you know, led by true freshmen and Keontae George. Um, there are some teams out there that are, you know, really good and with, with true freshmen. They just, you know, this is a strange tournament. Like another one, Indiana, where the two best players are, 
our true freshmen and Trace Jackson Davis and Jalen Hood Shafino. Um, again, weird tournament. So you know, all of those all of those teams that I mentioned are now out. So <laughs> right. none, of them, none of them won. But you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and 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 I am in agreement that those that your point isn't totally wrong because you got there's examples over the course of the last decade that teams have made deep runs with yeah. fresh. My point is like you just look up right now and go. There's not really a team with that roster construction that's still in there, and that doesn't preclude you from having one in Oregon and it working. I just think it's kind of an interesting thing to look at what's what's been successful this tournament, and it's been, as you said, one of the weirder tournaments I've watched in a while. So that maybe we don't take too much I, from it. I think the I think if, I think the commonality is experienced guards. I think you need an experienced point guard, experienced two guard, just someone who's going to be able to drink, bring the ball up, and then. Yeah, if you have a true freshman who's just an absolute score, I think that's a really good combination. Like Alabama, who you know number one overall seed, and you know, despite all the off court stuff, like that's a really that's a damn good team. That's a really really good yeah. overall team, and they have experienced guards and they have true freshman wings who are just there to score the basketball, play defense, and get rebounds. So I think the path is there. It's just how does Oregon construct the team around those true freshmen because they haven't done a good job of that recently. Yeah, another example of that is Kansas with Jalen Wilson being a senior and yep. Grady Dick yep. being a freshman. And yep. Grady Dick yep. is filling it up. I mean, they got knocked out in the second round, but that's another example. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's yeah. the problem with these examples. Yeah. Um, I, I think in a perfect world for Oregon, they add a grad transfer portal guy. He's got one or two years of eligibility. That's a shooter. He's probably going to be in line to start, but he's got to earn it. And then they had a Bronny James to kind of be another talented freshman to add to the mix. You, so you've kind of got best of both worlds. You add a potential first round draft pick to your roster and maybe he's good enough to, to be the starter. And if he is awesome, but if he's not, you've given yourself a secondary option with this transfer that you've added that brings some college experience like what Jared was talking about surrounding, you know, your freshman with another, you know, vet guy, even though he's not been in the program, you get Keyshawn Bartholomew to come back. Um, you, you get one of Dante and Khalil Ware to come back. And then you, you hope, you know, one of Quincy and, and uh, Soares and, and maybe two between those two guys comes back. And that's kind of your nucleus. You, you've got you know four or five vets that you know a couple of them are starters from this from this season, regular contributors, um, and then you've got four or five freshmen that are all ultra talented. And you basically can say like, hey, athletically, skill wise, you are you know probably four of the top seven best players on the roster but we don't need you to be unless, you know, every single night, we just need you to be really good at one thing. And our vets can kind of carry the, the, the heavy workload and you just be really, really good at one thing that could be Kwame at rebounding and defense. That could be cook at defense. And for Shellstead, that could be, you know, creating opportunities for others. And for Bronny, that could be, you know, hitting your open jumpers, be really good at one thing and not have to ask those guys to be really good at three or four things. There's definitely reason to be really optimistic about what next year could be, though. Just, just to, just to conclude it, and I think those listening hopefully are getting a sense of that of some really highly rated recruits potential that a lot of players returned from a nucleus that was talented on a team that was very underachieving. No one's arguing that, but for a team that's coming off an NIT run, like 
probably not many teams in this tournament you would look up and say, man, they have better ceilings for 23-24 that are in their current situation. And there are obviously still teams in the NCAA tournament where you look at Oregon and think Oregon's in a lot better shape than, than that program is. So um, I don't think – I am predicting today that I don't expect it to be a third straight NIT for men's basketball. Yeah. I, I would be pretty shocked. Um, the talent be, is yeah. going to get better. Um, you know, everything we've heard about Jackson Shelstead is really, really good. And you don't want to put that type of pressure on a true freshman, but you know, you hear the same type of things that came out when Peyton Pritchard showed up with Jackson Shelstead. And that's an unfair expectation to throw on the kid, but it's going to happen. And that's kind of what's happening already is he's going to have that kind of an impact. Um, two-year Gatorade player of the year. So you're right. Like, I think even without adding Bronny James, they're a preseason top 25 team next season, you know, probably 22, 23. Mm -hmm. um, and they've got one of the best coaches in the game. And if things come together, they could be really special. We'll see. It's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for submitting your questions. Until the next one. On Wednesday, uh, just tease, you will want to listen to this one on Wednesday. Um, that's all we're going to say. Make sure that you keep your eyes out for it. Until then, you're listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace.